Well, again, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, as Matt said, we've been um, known each other for a while now, and that's part of the reason for that is that I'm not from here. I'm not from Harrisburg. Angela is. She was uh, born and brought up in Edders, just down the road. And so we met a number of years ago. Uh, this year is our 10th anniversary. But shortly before that, I was here in Harrisburg at a missions conference and training, and she was there, and we met. And uh, I had never been to Harrisburg before. I couldn't have told you that Harrisburg was the capital of Pennsylvania. I'm from Texas, and, um, and so our marriage prepared us for Dubai because it is definitely a cross-cultural marriage as well, <laughs> a Texan and a girl from Edders. Um, but it has been God's grace that's carried us through. And so we are glad to be here. A- Angela, when she walked in, she was like, oh, my history teacher is playing guitar. Um, <laughs> so there, it's good to feel a part of the family as, already. Well, we are looking to God's word this morning. Uh, we're not just talking about Dubai and the Zellers. We want to talk about Jesus. And so open your Bibles to Matthew 28, and that's really uh, where we're going to be directing our focus, although we'll look broader than that. In this rhythm of grace of mission, what we're looking at is the idea that God, the God that we serve, that we worship, is up to something. He's doing something in this world, and he has been doing something, and he's getting towards something. And so as those who worship him, we become part of that. And so the rhythm of grace of mission leads us into this idea of thinking about how this is not just an aspect of the Christian life. This is not just something that we, we have on the wall occasionally. Okay, that's, those are the mission people, the people that have their face, and we, we give them some money, and, and we get, kind of get... We tick that box that we've done the mission thing. But what we want to look at this morning, what we want to see in the Great Commission, is that mission is much broader than that, and it involves all of us. And yes, it involves those who go internationally, but it also involves all of us who go day to day. In Matthew 28, there's the famous verses that we're looking at, in, um, especially in 16 to the end of the chapter. And I want to read those and, and then walk through them a bit. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the way I want to look at this this morning uh, is first by looking at what is being said here, second, who is it being said to, and then third, what does it mean for us? So what is being said here, who is it being said to, and what does it mean for us? So what's being said here? Now these verses come at the end of Matthew's gospel. It's kind of, in some ways, tempting to look at this as a bit of a footnote a bit of a P.S. that Matthew wants to just get in at the end of his letter and, and, uh, and pen these few last words. The real action has already happened. Jesus has been crucified. He was risen. Um, in the first part of this chapter, we see him rising. Or we, we don't see him rising. We see the testimony of Mary. Um, we see the risen Christ in Mary Magdalene and the other Mary as they see him. And then we kind of get this great commission. So is that what this is? Is this just a little bit of a tack-on 
to Matthew? Well, no, it's not. In fact, most scholars would say that this is actually the climax of Matthew's gospel. That the whole gospel up until this point has been preparing the reader to hear these verses. It's been preparing the reader to hear this message, this commission. Matthew's gospel is, of all the gospels in many ways, the one that's most preoccupied with this idea of mission. This idea that God's good news and his grace is going to go beyond the Israelite people into the Gentiles. In the, um, in the, in the genealogy, in the, in the first chapter, we see that Gentiles are included intentionally there. It's Matthew's little way of reminding them, hey, there's, there's Gentiles that were involved in this. We see stories where um, it's the Gentiles that are responding, whereas the Jewish leaders are the ones that are pushing back against Jesus' reign and his authority. Jesus sends his disciples out uh, earlier in Matthew, and he sends them to the Jews, but as preparation for them to go to the Gentiles. Again and again, Matthew's reminding his reader that the Lord has a heart for the nations beyond the one that he came to. John MacArthur says that these words, these, this great commission, is not just the climax of Matthew, but in some ways contains the essence of all of Scripture. That if we don't get these verses, if we don't understand these verses, then we've missed something about the message of the Bible. And so let's take a step back for a minute as we're thinking about what's being said here to think about how does this fit within the message of the Bible? Again, is this a new thing that Jesus has come up with? He's decided, uh, well, I'm leaving, so... Uh, who, who, can take, who can take charge? Okay, I'll give it to you guys. You guys run with it and do something. Or does this have a history to it and a background to it? And yes, it does. If you think about back in the first chapters of the Bible, God is opening up his story and as he's created man, and what does he do for them? Before the curse, God gives to man a commission. He says to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. And he gives them work to do, to tend the garden and to keep it and to, and to name the animals. Did they do it? No, they don't. They, instead of bringing all the world into submission, they actually submit to creation. They submit to the serpent. And they follow his ways instead of the Lord's ways. And in doing so, they are cast out into exile. Later on, we find that God then speaks to Abraham. Abraham, the great... Um, the, the great leader of what would then become Israel. Abraham is there and he receives a call from God. He receives a commission if you look in Genesis 12. And God again calls him and says, Abraham, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And, a- and Abraham, for his credit, he follows the Lord. He goes where the Lord is telling him to do and, and is obedient to his calling. But Abraham's descendants, the Israelite people, the Israelite people who are uh, called God's son in Ezekiel, he calls the nation his son, but they don't follow the Lord's ways. They, like the first son, Adam, they reject the Lord's way. Them and and none of their kings follow after the Lord. They They don't bless the nations around them. They incorporate the nations into their worship, creating idolatry and Immorality. So the Lord puts them into exile. 
And so the stage is set in the grand story of redemption. How is this going to happen? What is going to happen to where finally the Lord's will is done on earth? Well, what happens is he sends his son. He sends his son, and his son does exactly what God had wanted his people to do all along. In every way, he submits to the Lord's will. In every way, he does what was asked of him. He now then demands and commands and has the authority to rule over and subdue everything. And so then is it any surprise that his words to his disciples are then, go, be fruitful, and multiply. If you are to be my followers, you are to do the same thing that God has been asking his people to do straight from the beginning. So what is being said here is not a new thing. What is being said here is the very thing that God has been saying all along. He wants his people to be those that don't just listen to him and give intellectual assent to what he is doing and who he is, but his people are to be those that take and in obedience to him bless the world and see that the world worships him through their multiplication. And so that's why we come to these words and we see what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying here is actually not a number of things, but it's one thing. As you heard those verses, as you've read them before, it's tempting to see in there four things that Jesus is commanding them to go, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them. But actually, if you look at it closer, what he's telling them is actually just one thing. And that's to make disciples. And those other three things are, are ways in which that happens. You can't make a disciple unless you meet one. You've got to go and find them. You've got to go and find these other people in the natural course of your life or intentionally trying to find out where is the gospel not named? Where are disciples not being made? And there's a particular calling there for some to go into those kind of pioneering places because they hear the call that all nations are to be made disciples and so they want to go there. Others go across the street, go across the hallway to the next cubicle. But there is a going that's necessary in making disciples. And there's a baptizing that's necessary. You remember how Adam was told to name the animals. Well, now our, us, as, as the Lord's disciples, we're not told to name anybody, but to bring them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through baptism and then to teach them. So these are the ways that we make disciples. So what is being said here, let's summarize that, what is being said here is that God's people are to be fruitful and to multiply through the making of disciples. And this is something that he's been telling his disciples to do all along, all from the beginning. This is not a new news, but it is now clear that this is how it will take place in light of Jesus' resurrection and teaching. So now, who is this being said to? That's a bit of what's being said. Who's it being said to? Because another thing that people do when they come to this text is they, they try and think about ways that it might not apply to them. Well, it says here that the 11 were, were there, so Jesus was talking to the 11, right? And so he was telling those specific people to make disciples of all nations. And then at Pentecost, a bit later, uh, it's mentioned that many people were there from many different nations. And so that's probably what it meant, that, that Jesus told them um, this is going to happen. And then at Pentecost, they preached the gospel and people from many nations here. And so that's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Well, not quite. 
I think there's some clues within the passage that would lead us to think that it's not just the 11 disciples that are there. You know, Jesus is very excited about this gathering in Galilee. If you look back in verse 10, it says, Jesus said to them, he's talking to these ladies, don't be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they'll see me. It doesn't just say, tell the 11 disciples to come to Galilee. He says, tell my brothers. This is a general term. He's saying, spread the news that we're going to get together in Galilee. In Luke 24 and in John 20 and 21, there's similar kind of general invitations to this gathering in Galilee. So it's likely what's happening here is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Remember when he says that there was at one time 500, over 500 that saw him at once? It's likely that this is that time that five, over 500 people came together in, Galax, in Galilee uh, to see the risen Christ and to hear what he was saying. So it's not just being said to the 11. And even if it was, the command itself, the commission itself, is self-perpetuating. Because if the disciples were told to make disciples and teach them all that, that was commanded, one of those things that they were commanded was to make disciples. So they were to make disciples and teach those people to make disciples. You see how it works? So this is not simply for these 11. It's likely, even in that moment, something that was given to all the people. It's very unlikely that the 11 would have doubted. You see in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Well, the disciples had already seen him. The disciples had already seen him privately in the room, and they, they knew that he was the risen Christ. Why would they doubt? Well, it's likely that it was referring to this big group some of them, they, they were worshiping, but yet at the same time had doubts. And so who is this being said to? It's being said to all of those who would be Christ's disciples. So it's being said to you. These, this commission, this, this calling to make disciples is being said to you. It's being said to you as much as it was being said to those who gathered in Galilee on that day. So then what does it mean for us? Let's ask that question. What does this mean for us? What can we learn about making disciples from this passage and this idea of mission? Well, and that's the first thing. The first thing that mission is wrapped up in this idea of disciple making. There's many things that Christians can do in terms of activity. We can go and um, do a number of good works. And those are great things. We can build wells. We can um, have baby bottle blasts. And we can do a number of things that adorn the gospel and lead to disciple making. And we should do those things. Those are absolutely a part of the broader sense of Christian mission. But there's a particular focus to Christian mission. Christian mission is the making of disciples. If it doesn't connect to making disciples, then it's really at the end of the day not Christian mission. It can be a good thing, but it's not mission. Mission is this idea of making disciples. It is this ambition to be fruitful and to multiply. That is what we need to take from this. So then the question is, for you, what does disciple making look like in your life? If that's true, if it's true that this is being said to you, and if it's true that the mission, this rhythm of grace of mission, is wrapped up in this idea of making disciples, what does disciple-making look like in your life? Maybe you're not familiar with that term, making disciples. Well, disciple-making is this idea of imparting to others spiritual good in Jesus Christ. 
That's really all it means. Imparting to others spiritual good in Jesus Christ. A lot of times we get really funny ideas about what discipleship could look like, depending on your background or what kind of uh, ministries or churches you've been part of before. Um, You can have the impression that discipleship is just a Paul and a Timothy. So it's an older person meeting with a younger person and training them in ministry, and that's discipleship. That is discipleship, but it's not all of discipleship. In uh, Titus 2, there's a, there's a call to older ladies uh, working with younger ladies and training them up. That's also discipleship, but it's not the only thing that discipleship is. I think of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's discipleship. That is discipleship. Imitating, a, providing an imitatable and understandable witness for Christ that others can follow. So that can happen with a younger person to an older person. That can happen with a, a mother to a child. That can happen with friends at work. That can happen any number of different sets of relationships. It could be one-on-one. It could be in a group setting where we're getting together to disciple one another. Because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to make followers of myself. I'm trying to make followers of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter that if you think, oh, I'm, I'm one of Scott's disciples. No, I hope you never think that. I want you to think I'm Jesus' disciple and Scott has helped me in that way. He has imparted good to me in Jesus Christ so that I can grow into the image of my Savior. That's discipleship. So if you think of your life and you think, how in the last week did I intentionally impart to someone else spiritual good in Jesus Christ? Did you? Did you, did you sit down and read the Bible with anyone? And just say, you know what, I, I don't know everything, but I know, I know some things. I love this book. That's one of them. And so would you sit with me and just, can we just read a chapter and see what the Lord does? That's a great way to disciple somebody. That's a great way to live on mission. How about praying? As I mentioned, uh, here in this room, I know many of you are, are members of this church, covenant members of this church. Some of you maybe are not. Are you praying for one another? And then when you pray for one another, are you telling the other person that you prayed for them or asking them how you could pray for them? That's a great way. That's a phenomenal way to encourage someone to let them know that there's somebody else that took interest in their life and sacrificed time out of their day to lift them before the Father. And not in just a, you know, Sunday morning, hi, hello, yeah, oh yeah, I'll be praying for that. But hey, this is, this is what I prayed for you. This verse was on my heart. Imparting to others spiritual good in Christ. What I'm trying to say there is this is not a mysterious thing. This is not something for the super professional Christians that get paid to do it. This is something that all of us have been told in the Great Commission. And now all of us need to hear again and again that this is our mission to make disciples. But here's an encouraging thing, and this is the last thing I want to say from these verses. Is that one thing we see about disciple making here is that it is a corporate activity. Disciple-making is a corporate activity. Even as much as it's an individual responsibility, it's something that each one of us are called to individually. Disciple-making is a corporate responsibility. And what do we, how do we see that here? Well, these things that said about disciple-making are primarily things that are actually given to the church to be responsible for. When Christ talks about all the authority that he has in heaven and on earth, 
Think back to Matthew 18, and who did he give that authority to? He gave the keys to the kingdom, the symbolic measure of his authority and the use of his authority. He gave that to the church. When Jesus says here to uh, baptize them, well, this is something that the church is to do. The church is to be the one in, in where the, the ordinances are practiced. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, that sign of ongoing and continuing participation in covenant relationship with the church. And baptism, that sign of entrance into the universal church. Well, baptism is something that's given to the church. It's given to the church to be a place that someone is not simply professing their faith alone, but the church is therefore affirming back to them, yes, we hear your profession and we welcome you into it. In Acts, we see that there were thousands that believed in one day and they were baptized, and it says they were added to their number. They joined the church. This is something that's given to the church. Teaching. In verse 20 there, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, if you read the rest of the New Testament, who is given the responsibility to guard sound doctrine, to teach and to train and to raise up people into Christian maturity? It's the church. Paul is passionate about the church and planting churches, not just because that's his particular job, not because he works for a ministry that is excited about planting churches. He, there was no Acts 29 at that time. Paul is excited about church planting because he sees this as the way to do this job that, God, that Jesus has called us to. The primary way that God is making disciples and that churches, that people will multiply and be fruitful as individuals is in so much as they are joined together in local assemblies and churches. It is the church. It's a team sport. This idea of making disciples is a team sport. And we, I don't know about you, but we see that so often in Dubai. So often where somebody will meet somebody and bring them along to church and Maybe they've had a hard time sharing the gospel with that person, but for whatever reason, they connect really fast with somebody else in the church. And that person's able to bring them along and to, to share the gospel with them in a way that they understand and believe. Or just, not just in evangelism, but even just in disciple making. There's times in our church where I'll be trying to encourage someone and reach out to them and build them up. Again, but for whatever reason, just maybe it's even just something practical as schedules. We just can't find a time to meet together but because it's a team sport, because there's other people involved, maybe somebody else can be involved in that. And not only is it um, a team sport in just practically reaching out to people, but it's a team sport in that it's us. We are a corporate witness. You are a corporate witness here in Harrisburg. I love your mission to be the very presence of Jesus in this city. And that's true in so much as you are faithfully guarding the gospel together, doing that not just as individuals, but as a church family. This is a corporate command. So uh, Matt asked me one way that you can encourage us and participate in our work. And I said prayer. But then the other that I want to leave you with is friends. Make disciples and do it together. If you remember Paul as he's writing in his letters and he talks often about, you know, that he has um, these, all these trials and struggles and things that he's going through. And at the end of the day, he says, and on top of all that, there's the burden of all the churches. But then you think of the, the beginning of most of his letters where he's celebrating what's going on in the churches and how encouraged he is by what's happening in those churches, even though he's far from them. He's received these good reports. And friends, I can tell you the same thing. 
that for us in Dubai, as we're seeking to plant churches and add to the kingdom by multiplying churches, one of the most encouraging things to us is to hear that the exact thing that we are trying to do among the nations is the thing that's happening here in Harrisburg. That you are a church that's passionately pursuing one another, and because of that, the Lord is giving the increase, and disciples are being made, and churches are being planted. That is what's exciting for us. It's not that the feeling that, hey, we're doing this thing way over here, but it's, hey, we're all doing this thing everywhere, and we get to partner together and encourage one another across the world. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you have no idea what we're talking about because you have never understood the authority that Jesus has in your life. So if that's you, I want to invite you to be a disciple. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ by following him, understanding that this risen Lord that died is the one who has fulfilled everything that God has commanded. And he is the one that we now celebrate in communion. So let's do that together and let me pray as we go. Our Father, we do lift these things before you. And we ask, Lord, that you would make us fruitful disciples. Fruitful disciples that are multiplying, giving grace to everyone who would hear. Lord, thank you for this gathering of believers and how as disciples they have covenanted to one another to be fruitful together in the making of disciples in Harrisburg. Father, I pray that you bless that work. And Lord, I do pray, knowing that there are maybe some in this room and there's some in this city and there's many in this world that have not yet heard this message and been made a disciple of Jesus Christ. Lord, would they see the joy and the beauty of knowing the one true God and how this plan of yours is not an empty, vain way of conquering, but it's a loving way of gathering people to yourself for their joy and your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.